This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is one of the people I love speaking to most, Parker Palmer. Parker Palmer is a world-renowned writer, speaker, and activist who focuses on issues in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. He's reached millions worldwide through his nine books, including Let Your Life Speak, The Courage to Teach, A Hidden Wholeness, and Healing the Heart of Democracy. What sounds true, Parker Palmer has contributed to a new book called Darkness Before Dawn, Redefining the Journey Through Depression. In this collection of perspectives, there are new insights and practices that reach beyond conventional models and that will help the reader receive depression's uninvited yet singular gifts. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Parker Palmer and I spoke about the potential meaningfulness of the passages of depression that he has encountered in his own life. We talked about why there's so much fear surrounding depression and his thoughts of depression as a natural part of the human journey. Parker also offered advice that he might give to people who are caught in a difficult passage. And finally, we talked about his realization that depression can be, quote, a befriending force, pushing you down onto safe ground. Here's my conversation with Parker Palmer. Parker, Sounds True is publishing a new anthology called Darkness Before Dawn, Redefining the Journey Through Depression. And I wanted to start off by talking about this idea of redefining the journey through depression and how you see it. How do you see this journey through this dark land of depression? Hmm. Well, I like the emphasis on redefining a lot, Tammy, because, uh, well, for a couple of reasons. Um, as a person who's suffered from um, three profound experiences of clinical depression in his adult life, uh, two of them in my 40s and one of them in my mid-60s, I'm, I'm soon to turn 75, I'm aware of a couple of things. Um, at the most basic and crudest level, uh, this culture defines depression as something shameful. Um, and and that angers me a great deal. Um, so millions of people suffer not only from depression, but from the kind of aura of shamefulness that, that surrounds it, as if, as if it were some sort of character weakness or a flaw in in one's personality or makeup 
and the, and the people who are close to those who are in depression are suffering the same way. So so that needs to be redefined. And and I think we've come some ways in 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 doing that uh, so that there's more open discussion in this culture about depression and when you whenever you have open discussion it's it's at least a bit of a sign that we're moving beyond the the taboo state of affairs so that's that's one way in which it needs to be redefined uh, i think another way in which it needs to be redefined is that um like many things it it has been medicalized if if that's a word and i want to speak carefully here because it's not that i uh, want to reject or that i disbelieve in medical approaches to depression i think there are elements of of depression or certain forms of depression that are significantly related to DNA to genetic makeup and um, to brain chemistry, but the tendency to reduce depression to no more than that, um, the tendency these days for psychiatrists, for example, to um, to engage in no talk therapy whatsoever with their patients but simply to prescribe drugs and to track the impact of those drugs, that seems to me to be unfortunate. Again, I, I want to be clear, um, I'm not against antidepressants. I, I, I have personally been helped by them, although I feel lucky that I have not had to be on them long term. I've simply needed for the short term, a kind of floor put under my emotional life so that I could um, get some clarity about what was what was happening to me and through me and with me and 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 within me. Um, but the, this reductionist tendency that we have in our culture to want to make it all about physical mechanism. Um, seems to me not only unfortunate, but misguided and, and ultimately wrong. So uh, redefining depression um, from uh, something taboo to something that we should be holding in community in open and vulnerable ways, from something that's um, purely biological or mechanical uh, to something that has dimensions really of of spiritual and and psychological mystery to it human mystery um, and also redefining it from something that is essentially meaningless to something that can be meaningful um, all of that seems to me uh, to be important and and why it is that I uh, applaud your idea of of redefining depression. Now, Parker, you mentioned in your own life three passages, two in your 40s and one in your 60s. Could you tell us a little bit in terms of the meaningfulness, the potential meaningfulness in depression? 
how you were able to make meaning out of those passages in your life? Well, um, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that when I was in depression, and I think this is true of, of most people, and I've talked to a lot of people um, who've had this experience, when I was in depression, um, making meaning was an impossible task. Um, it, it was something to be endured. Um, and, and as I've written elsewhere in a, in a little book called Let Your Life Speak, where I have a chapter about my experience with depression, um, there, there is to me a mystery as to how, how people survive that, that deep darkness. Um, I, I, I've come over the years to saying that Depression is not so much like being lost in the dark as it is like becoming the dark. And what I mean by that is that in the depths of depression, um, you have no capacity to step back out of the darkness or a bit away from the darkness and say, oh, look what's happening to me. What is that all about? You, you don't have a self that is other than the darkness. So you've become the dark rather than being lost in the dark. And, and, and therefore you can't step back or get perspective and try to make meaning of it. Um, as I say in, in what I've written about depression, I hear people say, I don't understand why so-and-so committed suicide. Well, I understand that perfectly. Uh, depression is absolutely exhausting when you're in the depths of it, and I think that people who commit suicide often very simply need the rest. Um, they need surcease. And I understand that, that there's no mystery in that to me. The mystery to me is why some people come through to the other side and not only survive it, but thrive in the wake of it. And um, I've, I've wondered about that question a lot, and I've never come to an answer that, that, that fully satisfies me. But what I do know is experientially is, is that in my case, um, I managed to get through the worst of those times, and it's and it's a very lonely journey. Um, in each case, I had some help from the medical side. I had some help from the talk therapy side, and I had a little bit of help from one or two um, understanding friends who knew how to be present to me in in, in that experience. Although lots and lots of friends and acquaintances didn't know how to be present to me, they were they were scared of me. I think, and they they gave off that fear. They they indicated that fear either by by not getting anywhere near me, as if I had a contagious disease, um, or by um, trying to offer me 
what I know was well well intended, but ultimately cheap advice that essentially allowed them to sort of leave their their version of a little gift in my hands and then get out of the room as quickly as possible. And and of course, when that happens, um, you don't. It doesn't feel like a gift at all. It feels like a rejection. It it feels like a kind of curse. Um, and and so I've often said to people who have who have asked me, well, you know, I have this friend or relative who's depressed. What should I do? And I said, well, I can't I can't prescribe in detail, but I can tell you this: um, do do everything in your power to let them know that you're not afraid of them, that you can be present to them in a way that expresses faith and confidence that they have what it takes to make it through and don't come to them with with cheap advice don't don't come to them saying as people came to me saying but parker you're you're such a good guy you've helped so many people you've written such good books you've given such good talks can't you fall back on all of that and um pull yourself out of this hole well when you hear something like that at a time in your life when you're feeling uh, like uh, uh, like a non-entity, you're, you're, you've totally lost your sense of self. You're you're feeling like dirt. You're feeling like a worm. Um, the only the only response you can make to that is, I've defrauded one more person, and if they ever if they ever understood that I'm really not a good guy and that all that stuff I wrote and said is really um, straw, uh, meaningless, uh, of of absolutely no utility now, Um, they would reject me. They would cast me into the outer darkness. Similarly, people came and and said, but Parker, it's, it's such a beautiful day outside. Why don't you go out and you know, soak up some sun and smell the flowers, as it were. Um, that's ultimately depressing rather than encouraging, because while you know intellectually that it's a beautiful day outside, and you know intellectually that those that those flowers uh, smell perfumed and lovely to other people. Um, you, you don't have an, an ounce of capacity in your own body to really experience that that beauty or that loveliness, and so the the encouragement to to get outdoors and see how lovely it is um, really turns out to be um, a discouraging reminder of your own incapacity at that time. So so. Having you know, having worked my way through on that very lonely journey, where only a very few people uh, were able to offer the kind of presence and and therefore the kind of support that I needed, as I as I came out the other side, um, I, I think I think a couple of things happened that that started allowing me to make meaning of the experience. One is that I found myself a more compassionate person. 
Um, you know, I think I think when you suffer, um, if you hold it in the right way, uh, in, a, in, a, in an open heart, uh, you you become more, much more empathetic toward the suffering of other people. Another way to say that is you become less afraid of other people's suffering. You're, you're more willing to be present to it in a faithful, abiding way because you, you no longer treat, treat it as sort of a contagious disease that you too might catch. You've been there. You've, you've had yourself hollowed out by that suffering. You know how it feels, and, and you're able to exercise an empathetic presence to, to other people. You become more compassionate in that sense. Um, at least that, that was my experience um, over time. And I think it was aided, you know, by, by a lot of reading that helped me reframe the experience, by a lot of solitude and walking in the woods that helped me reframe the experience. And, and in some ways, by becoming a strange attractor, and I don't just mean me, I mean anyone who's had an experience like this and, and who holds it in this open way, a strange attractor of other people who who, are, who have also taken that journey or who are somewhere on that journey. So you start to, to form, you start to develop a sense of community that, that, that in a, in a way, in an odd way, sort of normalizes the problem. It, it, it says to you, we're all in this together. And this is part of the human experience. Um, I've, I've, I've always felt that, you know, ever since having the experience of, of depression three times now and emerging on the other side, not only surviving but thriving, um, it's, it's very clear to me that the most important words I can say to someone who comes to me with, with almost any form of suffering, after I've listened to them deeply, after I've attended to them profoundly uh, and this may these words may come after a long period of time but the most important words that I can say to them ultimately are welcome to the human race uh, you, you you've shared your calamity with me and there is nothing in me that wants to say I can't bear to hear that or um, how could you ever let such a thing happen, or what a marginal person you are to have had an experience like that? On the contrary, it's welcome to the human race. You know, you have now you you now enter the company of those who have experienced some of the deepest things that a human being can experience. So, so you make. You make meaning of it, you start to make meaning of it, I think, by realizing that this incredibly isolating experience called depression, and, and it, is, it is isolating um, in, in, uh, to a greater extent than, than I imagined survival, for survivable. 
this in, but this you start to realize that this incredibly isolating experience called depression ultimately reconnects you with the human community in a deeper, wider, and richer way. The I think I think the meaning making goes on and uh, and it it probably takes different forms i'm sure it takes different forms for different people i think a second kind of meaning making that i would that i would name be second after this 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 opening of compassion that it can help create is, is that um it it i think it makes you it can make you more courageous um I started noticing after all each of my depressions that my capacity to to uh, to put myself in very intimidating or challenging situations had grown because if you if I'm sta- if I'm standing up in front of 5000 physicians for example giving a lecture on what's wrong with medical education as I have occasion to, to do every now and then, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that would have been a very intimidating experience for me. And I would have been operating out of a lot of ego defensiveness, I think. But once you've survived and thrived in, uh, through one or two or three experiences of depression, you you really have to say to yourself, um, what could be more daunting than that? I survived that, and so this thing in front of me right now, these 5,000 highly educated critical listener physicians, um, they they really don't threaten me. This situation doesn't threaten me. And I, when I'm not threatened, I'm more likely to come from a soulful place in myself rather than an ego defensive place and for that very reason what i do with those people is much like more likely to be empathetic and well received even if the message i have to deliver is is critical so that's that's another way in which i think you make meaning you your depression becomes a sort of benchmark experience against which other things just don't look so bad. Uh, and since you know, since we have fairly frequent experiences in life of facing into stuff that looks pretty tough, um, that's 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 an asset. That's that's a piece of meaning. And then I'd, I'd name one more thing, Tammy. Um, I think you make meaning out of depression, at least I make meaning out of depression, by sharing the experience as openly as I know how uh, with other people. Um, and that's why, over the years, I've I've written about it and I've talked about it. The, I think the first important thing to say about that is that a person has to... Has to has to be sure that the experience of depression, the experience of darkness, is well integrated into his or her self-image 
and self-understanding before you begin sharing it. Because if there's if there's any residue in you of that shamefulness or that sense of being flawed uh, or that sense of, you know, the, the, this darkness is not part of who I should be, then you're not ready to share it. And sharing it would be a dangerous thing to do, and the message that you would convey, whether you intended it or not, would not be helpful. It took me 10 years after my first depression, which was in my um, mid-40s, to feel that it it was well-integrated enough that I could start to write and speak about it. so it you know it 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 was the ability at that point to say yes i am all of the above i am my darkness and my light i am those months i spent cowering in a corner with the shades pulled down as well as the guy who can get on stage in front of 5000 physicians and deliver some challenging messages um i am all of that and i don't need to blink any of it uh, it's it's my way of saying to myself, welcome to the human race. We are a very mixed bag, and Parker, that includes you. So as soon as I was, was able honestly to say that to myself, then I was ready to take that, that third, what I've named here as a third step in making meaning of depression, which is sharing it with others in a way that uh, can be healing and therapeutic and encouraging for them. People will sometimes say to me, well, it's such a courageous thing for someone like you, um, who's you know known for his spiritual writing and speaking and uh, who, who seems to have it all together um, and who's had a pretty successful life as measured by the world standards. It's so courageous of you to say that you know, you spent months cowering in a corner with the shades pulled down. But from the beginning, my response to that has been, no, this isn't about courage at all. This is about this is about staying healthy, me staying healthy by showing up in the world as who I really am. Um, one of the things you start to think about more profoundly at age 75, as I said, I'll soon be there, um, is is your own mortality. And as I've thought about that, I can't think of a sadder way to die than with a sense that I never showed up in the world as who I really am. So showing up with everything I've got, my darkness as well as my light, is, I think, part of ultimately dying a good death. Um, Dying with the ability to say, to to the best of my ability, I showed up in the world with everything I've got, and I put everything I've got at the disposal of anyone who was who was interested in getting access to it and that includes my darkness as well as my light because if it's human 
it's a deployable gift as long as we can explore it and and explore its meaning with each other. Now, Parker, I'm curious if someone's listening to us right now and their experience is the experience you described of being the dark itself and they're listening to you. They're not in the meaning-making place at this moment. They're just that darkness. What might you say to that person in that state? I know you're not going to give them any kind of trite, feel-good answer, but what can you say to somebody in that state? Well, you know, I, I don't... That's a point, Tammy, at which I fundamentally don't believe in words, even though I'm a writer and a speaker, and I generally believe in words a lot. Um, as, as you know, I, I tell a story in the little book, Let Your Life Speak, about a friend who, who came to me in, in an incredibly helpful way. Um, in fact, I've, I've always thought of him as the person, the one person uh, who best understood what I was going through. And this was a friend who uh, came to my house at four o'clock or so every afternoon, having asked my permission to do so, sat me down in an easy chair, removed my shoes and socks, and for maybe half an hour massaged my feet. He hardly ever said anything. He was a man somewhat older than I, a very intuitive man, a Quaker, to whom the silence came naturally. But somehow, by intuition, he found the one place in my body where I could feel connected with another human being. And his simple wordless act of massaging my feet was a lifeline for me that that kept me at least somewhat connected with the human race in the in the midst of this incredibly isolating experience um he 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 would occasionally say just a very few words but they would always be reflective of his intuition about what was going on with me so he might say i feel your struggle today and that would be it or he might say it feels like you're a little stronger today and that would be it and there would never be any demand for conversation he would he he didn't say these things in a way that made me feel oh i'd better make bill feel like a good caregiver by saying yay or nay or something in between so the, if someone is listening to this right now um who's who 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 is feeling like the darkness rather than just being lost in the dark um I, I it would it's hard for me to imagine that the words that I'm speaking any words that I could speak would mean a lot to them unless there is somewhere in them for this person for reasons I wouldn't know or understand uh, some glimmer of hope that a person who's been in the same place that they are can articulate what that place is like and is talking from 
a a post post depression experience um, beyond surviving into thriving. If 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 there's some spark of hope in that for somebody, I God bless them. But I think I think the most important thing that such a person could do for themselves if they have the energy to do it um, is is to seek out some kind of presence of the sort that my friend Bill gave to me. And I, I think it's often, you know, something physical that that doesn't involve language. Um, I was hardly able to go outside during my experiences of depression. And in part, it was because I didn't want to have social encounters. I was incapable of running across a person and having a conversation. But what I could do was to get on my bike and just zip around town. I often, interestingly enough, would ride vigorously through um, a very large cemetery that's not far from my home that has this kind of uh, very extensive set of roadways uh, running through it um, and and find some comfort in that physical activity. Walking, you know, would sometimes work, but but not during the daytime when I might run into someone else. I could do that only at night. If I, if I had had access to a swimming pool or something of that sort, uh, or a warm body of water, um, being in the water might have helped, but again, by myself. So um, I, I don't think that that verbal encouragement works at that in that deep dark place um you know we we have all these images from some of our spiritual traditions about the cloud of unknowing or the the deep and wordless darkness or the void um before life begins and and you know those are places where there's not a lot of chit chat, and um, I think most most words sound like mere chit chat when you're in that place. Now, Parker, in the beginning of our conversation, when we talked about the importance of redefining the journey through depression, you talked about how having open conversations where we can just bring things out in front of ourselves, talk about our experiences of depression, how important that is. And also that many people are afraid of depression and how for the person in a depressed state, the fear of other people can be quite painful. And my question is, why do you think depression is something that is so hard for us to bring out into the open? Why are people so afraid of it? Yeah, and that's a very important question that takes us into the partly into the depths of the human psyche, but I think also um, it takes us into the nature, some of the distortions of American culture. Um, 
it's it's not clear to me that all cultures have the same problem or as big a problem as we do around this. But first, let's identify the fact that um, that it's a very common experience for people who have suffered hard things uh, to find other people avoiding them, not not just depression. So, um, you know, if, if you if you're going through a divorce. Uh, or you have recently been divorced, there will be people who prior to that uh, would have talked easily with you who won't know what to say. Uh, a common phrase in our culture or a common feeling in our culture is, I don't know what to say, so I'm not going to call that person. I'm going to walk around the block to avoid that person. I'm not going to write that person. Um Similarly, if a spouse dies or a child dies or a tragedy of that proportion occurs in a family, uh, we we're afraid of it, and we don't we don't know what to say. Now, there's a whole interesting analysis we can do about why it is that we don't know what to say. Um, and I think it is that we live in a culture where everything is a, is a problem that needs to be fixed. And we don't know how to fix things like this, like the ones I've just named. So part of the key to it, I think, is realizing that not everything is a problem that needs to be fixed. And if we can get that monkey off our backs, we will find things to say. Um, we will find ways to be present to one another. The, uh, here's a parallel. Uh, there are people listening to this or reading this who have had the experience of sitting at the bedside of a dying person. That's that's not an uncommon experience for people of a certain age. And we learn something in, in that experience, which is that this that we're now looking at a a situation that cannot be defined as a problem for which I have a fix or anyone has a fix. People die and no one can can stop that when it's you know when it's finally when when it's in its final stages um, so if we're if we're sitting at the bedside of a dying person, we give up the illusion that we can somehow invade that person and that problem with with our little toolkit in hand and offer advice or suggestions or techniques or things to do that will fix everything up. And that's a huge, powerful lesson. It, we also learn that the most disrespectful thing we could do would be to avert our eyes from the dying person, to look away in disgust or in frustration, that there's nothing we can do about it. That would that would feel like the most sort of 
egotistic cop-out, abandonment of a person who at that point simply needs our faithful attentiveness. So we learn, to summarize it, we learn at the bedside of a dying person neither to invade nor evade what's going on, but simply to hold it in our attentiveness. And my own belief, Tammy, is that when we're able to be present to another person that way, we are communicating without words some kind of confidence that this is part of the human journey and that the person we're with has whatever it takes to make this passage uh, in their own time and in their own way. I'm quite convinced, looking back, that that's what my friend Bill conveyed to me. He, he gave me, he conveyed that he had a certain confidence in me that I didn't have in myself. And, and because he was not afraid of me, I could slowly, slowly start being less afraid of myself. But as long as we carry this sort of fix-it thing with us, and 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 we we sort of assume that if we're going to go to someone in depression or someone who's lost a loved one to death or someone who's suffered some other sort of grievous loss, if we're going to go to them with the assumption that we have to fix it, then of course we're not going to know what to say because there's no fix. But if we let go of that assumption, as we ought to do, um, I think we can find ways to be present to such people that are very, very life-giving and very, very confidence-inducing and and very um, connective, allowing them to rebuild that bridge back to to the human community. Welcome to the human race is the silent message. If we can show up without, without a fix uh, in mind. Otherwise, the message is, um, I'm going to take you on as a project. And I can't think of anything more alienating to someone who's truly suffering than to be taken on as a project that allows the other person to prove what a what a skillful fixer they are. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Parker, I'm also curious, when you look back at your three passages through depression, if you could say that there was some type of intelligence at work in your life 
now in retrospect, looking at these experiences? And if so, what type of intelligence is that? What was trying to be worked out in you, if you will? Hmm. Interesting question. Um, so my, you know, my general belief is that there is a vast intelligence at work in all of life. Um, I don't see it as something outside of life, but as embedded in, in life itself, in the world of nature and human nature, the great web of, of being. And it's a very complex intelligence that, that knows how to weave together the shadow and the light, that knows how to weave together life and death, that knows how to weave together all kinds of things that our limited human intelligence wants to separate out um, as opposites or contradictions, you know, good and bad, black and white, light and dark, um, or I should say good versus bad, uh, right versus wrong, light versus dark. Um, so there's an intelligence that can hold it all, and um, and the human mind has... Uh, has limited capacity, but I think expandable capacity to understand that. Um, in my life, the, the concept, uh, the intellectual concept, and what, what eventually becomes a spiritual and I think even a bodily understanding of, of paradox has been very, very important. So paradox, as everyone knows, is is this notion that not everything is either or, some things are both and. In fact, some of the most important things, most of the most important things are both and. I, I've always loved what the Nobel Prize winning physicist Niels Bohr uh, said one time when he said the opposite of an ordinary fact is a lie but the opposite of one profound truth may be another profound truth. That's paradox. And, and I think Niels Bohr's statement is a very discriminating statement. He says the opposite of one profound truth may be another profound truth. You, you take it a case at a time and you examine it. So, for example, am I made for community? Absolutely. The, the human self is a communal self. We wouldn't be here without community, and we can't go on without community. Am I made for solitude? Absolutely. Because in its depths, there's a lot about the human journey that's a solitary journey. And we must learn to take it. Um you know, it's it's possible to understand, in that light, it's possible to understand depression as one of the little deaths that allow us to practice for the big death. And um, I'm, I, I have no evidence that there's any intelligence that did this intentionally to me. I, I, I think, you know, life is this very complex mixture of intentionality and accident, um, but wherever it came from, and I and it it doesn't, I don't need 
didn't really know the answer to that. Um, I can I can make meaning of depression by saying that it allowed me to practice a, a certain form of dying, short of my actual bottle the die the death of my actual body and my and my present form of consciousness. Um, in a, in a way that helps prepare me for the big death. Um, a lot of wisdom traditions have this notion of all the little deaths in life that help prepare us for the big death. And you know, when you ask people, "What do you mean by the little deaths?" they'll say, "Well, things like the loss of the the failure of your youthful vision for what your life was going to be." the loss of a meaningful relationship, the failure of a project in which you had invested enormous energy, et cetera, et cetera. The, and, and let's add depression to that list. If you survive it, it's, it's one of the bigger kinds of little deaths. Um, and if there's an intelligence at work in that, I think... I think it's an intelligence that that works through me as I try to sift and winnow uh, the experience of depression and whatever it is that I might have to learn from that. Um, so, you know, causally, I don't know where these things come from, but after the fact i i i have some sense of of what it means to tap into your own intelligence and i mean that in in the in the sense of the multiple intelligences that every human being has not only cognitive rationality but emotional intelligence relational intelligence bodily intelligence intuitive intelligence Etc. Etc. So to tap into your own intelligence in that larger sense, and into and into the larger intelligence of of the universe, the cosmos, that we'll never get our own finite minds around, but that we can keep opening to bit by bit as we accumulate um, life experience and hold it. Um, as thoughtfully and reflectively as we know how. Now, Parker, in thinking of depression as a little death, how do you think your three passages have prepared you? In what way have those passages prepared you, do you think, for physical death? Well, it's a great question, and it's it's a hard one to sort out because there's a part of me as I approach my 75th birthday in about a month. There's a part of me that wants to say that that in my case, just aging itself um, has has prepared me. Um, I'm better prepared at age almost 75 than I was at 55 or 35 or 15. You know, for 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 dying. Um, you've seen more of it happen. You've, people you love have have gone ahead of you uh, into 
what Dylan Thomas called that dark night, and you have a sense with some of them that they're sort of making a path or leading the way the way they did earlier in your life if they happen to be a parent or a mentor that you that you loved and who loved you um so it's it's hard to sort out you know exactly what it is that that offers the preparation but it it seems to me that um Depression specifically, again, if you have the good fortune to survive it and thrive in the wake of it, um, it makes you less afraid of the dark. (laughs) Um, You know, we have this thing about about, uh, childhood when we're, many of us are afraid of the dark, and it carries on into adulthood, and uh, I remember asking a a friend of mine, this was back when we were both in our 50s, who had recently experienced a death in in his family, and I said, so how are you feeling about your own death? And he said, I don't like the idea because I'm afraid of the dark. (laughs) Well, it was partly a joke between friends, but there was also a kind of of gravitas to it, a kind of seriousness to it, um, the, the the kind you get in sort of gallows humor. And I remember thinking at the time that because of the two experiences of depression that I had had by then, I was not so afraid of the dark. Um, I, I had actually understood, had come to understand that um that you can you can you can be you can dwell in darkness and experience a certain kind of peace um which i think is what what led me to this this notion that some people find kind of radical which is that 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 I'm just not one of those people who who says I don't understand why so and so committed suicide. I understand they needed the rest, they needed the peace. And and that's one of the things that 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 sort of darkness can bring you. So I think, you know, I think in that sense the experience of depression is is preparatory to um as some people would say, the the long darkness that that death involves. Um, I, I myself have no reliable reports from the other side of death, and I've never been there, so I have no idea what what to expect. And I'm sure that, like every other experience of my life, whatever expectations I may have will be. Um, upended by the experience itself. I, I, you know, I have a lot of evidence that I, I'm not all that good at um, projecting exactly how it's going to be. I need to get there uh, to find out. But I think ex- depression has made me less fearful of a lot of things and 
um, the big death at the end of the road is is on that list. Parker, when you got depressed in your 60s, did you think, oh my God, I mean, I went through this in my 40s twice. I can't believe this is happening again. Like, this Absolutely. is... Absolutely. Like, this I, is just terrible. I felt like, oh, wait a minute, this isn't fair. I've been there, done that. I thought I had checked this off my to-do list. Um, and it's it's very interesting. I mean, my my first and second depressions were in my 40s. And the third depression came 17 years later. 17 years is a long time. And you almost forget that you were ever there. Um, and, and, and it takes you totally by, by surprise. So, yeah, I was, you know, as I found myself sinking and as I started to recognize the signs, um, I was, I was angry when, when I still had a capacity to be angry. Um, ultimately when you're in the depths of depression, you really have no emotional capacity at all. As I like to say to people who've never been there, uh, depression, clinical depression is not about feeling profoundly sad. It's about the terrifying realization that you can feel nothing at all. Um, Which, to loop back for a moment, is why the friend who came and rubbed my feet and actually evoked a little feeling in my body was giving me a miraculous sense of connection of a small degree of emotional recovery or of bodily recovery from this sort of numbing experience. So I was taken totally by surprise. I think I think that part of part of what um, helped me at that time again as i went into it and while i while i still had some 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 cognitive capacity left i mean you 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 think a lot in depression but you don't think helpfully but while i still had some helpful cognitive capacity left before i hit the bottom i also had the thought that because i'd been there a couple of times before and had survived and th- and been able to thrive in the wake of it um that that would might give me some tools or some reassurance that i could survive this one and thrive on the other side too the the depression that i think it's true of all three of my depressions that they were partly um, uh, biological and partly situational. That's a that's a very hard thing to sort out. And every psychiatrist I've ever talked to who understands the medical side of this says that there's just a lot about depression that we don't understand, and um, that that seems to me to be appropriate humility about about one of the the mysteries really of 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 human life but so, so I, on the biological side there is some history of depression 
in my family going back through several generations. So it's not inconceivable that I have some genetic predisposition. But in each of the depressions, I could also identify, um, as I began to emerge, I could identify situational elements and that had that had contributed to the to the depression and and one of those situational elements in when I was 65 was um, a growing awareness of my aging and my mortality um, and and the depressing thought that. I was going to die and that I had fewer years of life ahead of me by a long shot than I had behind me. So in that sense, the the depression at age 65 was one that, as I emerged, compelled me to do some deep thinking, some deep meditating, some meaningful talking, and um, in in my own journaling, at least, some meaningful writing about dying and death. Uh, it, it compelled me to face into that subject uh, more profoundly than I had so that it so that it wouldn't just rear up and take me by surprise the way I think it did. Uh, at that particular time in my life, with 65 being a, a kind of symbolic road marker um, on the life journey that says you're you're really getting old, um, and and so again, it it served as as a befriending force in my life, and and that prompts me, Tammy, to say something that I uh, first heard in in um, one of my earlier depressions in my 40s. Um, at that time, I, I worked with a therapist, and I, I, I think this was in my second depression. I worked with a therapist who listened to me very carefully for for a long period of time over a number of meetings. And I I felt that this was somebody who was really hearing me. And so when he spoke, I I was ready to listen. And at one critical um, get-together, he he said to me, you know, Parker, you seem to be imaging depression as the hand of an enemy trying to crush you. I wonder if it would be possible for you to image your depression as the hand of a friend trying to press you down to ground on which it's safe to stand. Um, those words, you know, didn't didn't change things overnight, for sure. But they left a they made a real impression on me. I felt that something important had been said that was worth exploring and trying to understand more deeply. And it was those words that led me to realize that at that stage in my life, my depression had a lot to do with the fact that I was living at altitude. 
um, I managed, and I write about this in Let Your Life Speak, I managed to um, I managed to identify um, several kinds of altitude that at which I was living. So there was the altitude of living in my ego rather than in my soul. There was the altitude of of a of having embraced a kind of a, a spirituality that was more about up, up, and away than it was about down to the ground of our being. Um, there was an altitude involved in embracing an ethic composed of oughts uh, rather than uh, an ethic that arose from the embodied values of my own life. Uh, there was an an altitude involved in ambition that was all about flying high rather than serving in ways that were within my reach and available to me. And and when you're living life at altitude, and if if you trip and fall, which we all do every day, you have a long way to fall, and you may kill yourself. But if you're standing on the ground, you can fall again and again and simply get up, dust yourself off, and take a next step. Um, so this that's the way I started to make sense of this notion that depression could be a befriending force, um, pressing you down to ground on which it's safe to stand. And it's been interesting to me over the years. I think Let Your Life Speak was published in 1999. So for the last 15 years or so, I've had so many people say that that analysis of altitude um, and the difference between living at altitude and living on the ground uh, spoke to their condition and helped them understand what was going on with them. This also leads me to say that the depression I had at age 65, and I've written about this too, was partly around the political situation in our country, which certainly hasn't gotten any better over the last 10 years, um, has in fact in some ways gotten worse. I I do think that that we pick up... um, depressive elements not only from our psyches and from our genetic makeup, from our brain chemistry, from all that internal stuff. We also pick it up from the environment. And at the moment, I'm not referring to chemicals in the environment, although that's a problem. I'm referring instead to things going on in the culture and in the society at large. And in 19... in um, uh, when I was 65, which would have been in 2004, um, it was a very depressing time in American politics, which is something I've I've always cared about. And and one thing I've learned in depression is that once you do get a little energy and are able to get a little perspective on what it is that's generating your depression or helping to generate it. It's important, if you possibly can, to become proactive in relation 
to whatever that may be. And so, in, as a writer, my way of one way I have of becoming proactive is to start writing again. And out of that came a book called Healing the Heart of Democracy, which actually begins with a with a prelude in which I talk about my depression, um, which was in part personal and in part political, and how I um, started trying to understand the way in which uh, the personal and the political are related, found great um, um, illumination, incidentally, in studying the life of Abraham Lincoln, who had been depressed since he was a very young man, um, this great figure in American political life, was so depressed when he was 19 or 20 that his neighbors would take the, take him in to sort of keep watch over him. He, they'd have them live in, in their houses um, for periods of time for fear he would take his life. They really helped the community helped see him through. Lincoln never totally overcame his depression. There's a, a great biblical phrase, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And anyone who's ever seen one of the classic photographs of Lincoln's face, and that includes almost everybody, will know immediately that that, that phrase is very descriptive of the face you see in those photographs. And I I think it was this capacity to hold his own light and his own darkness that made Lincoln the reconciling president we needed um, at the time, at the time, obviously, of the Civil War. Lincoln was the president who didn't try to demonize either side um, he was firm, he was leaderly, and he was decisive, but he did not engage in in the demonization and the blame game that is so toxic in American politics today. And I think the reason for one one reason for that is that he had long experience at saying to himself, "I am all of the above. I am my darkness as well as my light," and and for that reason, didn't have much trouble saying this union that we treasure is one of darkness and of light. Um, and what we're what we have here is not a perfect union, but a, a national organism that's always in search of the more perfect union. Um, because that's the way he had to live his own life in order to survive and thrive. So when I understood the situational element of my depression at age 65, um, I was able to become proactive about, in the form of writing a book, that gave me my way of coming to terms, coming to grip with, grips with, trying to make a contribution to the social and cultural conditions that were uh, that were that I was finding depressive. Now, Parker, just to make sure I'm understanding you correctly, when you're talking about Abraham Lincoln, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that 
you have a sense that his experience with depression is part of what equipped him to be able to be the force of reconciliation that he was in American history. Is that correct? Absolutely. There's no question about it. And anyone who would like to to study up further on that, there's a wonderful book that I drew on heavily in, in Healing the Heart of Democracy by a man named Joshua Wolf Schenk. And his book is called Lincoln's Melancholy. Uh, Melancholy was the 19th century name for what we would now call clinical depression. And Schenk makes a very, very good case that what you just said, Tammy, is true, uh, that his, his depression didn't disable him for the presidency, but equipped him for the presidency at that very critical time um, in American history. Because here was a man who had had to reconcile the shadow and the light in himself in order to move forward as a whole human being. Um, he, He was tempted as a young man to suicide, but he also felt this strong calling to play a significant role in political leadership. And uh, so he, he, he called upon this, this complex mix of darkness and light in himself uh, as, as, as tools, as really an energy source in, in playing that political role. And it's, it's, it's interesting and it's very sad to contrast that with the fact that some of us can remember, which is that, or with a fact that some of us can remember, which is that when George McGovern ran for president and chose a senator named Thomas Eagleton as his vice presidential candidate, it came out after a while that Eagleton had been treated for depression and he was forced to step down from the vice presidential candidacy Um, and McGovern had to choose a different running mate because of the taboo nature of this in in our society, in our contemporary society. Um, Rewrite American history and have Abraham Lincoln stepping down because a neighbor steps forward and says, you know, when he was a young man, he was—he had suicidal thoughts all the time. Rewrite American history that way, and you get a very dicey picture of what our national fate might have been. I really can't... It's hard for me to, to pick another president off the long list of American presidents who could have done what Lincoln did, um, during the Civil War as a reconciler. Um, and I think that, that his capacity for reconciliation externally came from his lifelong practice of, of inner reconciliation. And I'd be willing to bet that anybody you can identify as a public uh, reconciler of darkness and light 
is someone who has who has deep and long experience of that same kind of reconciliation inwardly. You just can't do it outwardly if you haven't been there inwardly. Parker, I just have two final questions for you here. And the first one is, in listening to you talk about these three big depressions, the curiosity that came up for me was, do you have in you any fear especially you talked about potentially the genetic factor in depression and how it runs in your family. Do you have any fear that a fourth depression might come upon you? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and the answer is uh, I don't. Um, and I'll qualify that by saying, to the best of my knowledge, um, you know, I think there are some things that stay hidden away in us that take us by surprise, and so we have to we have to get there to find out. I, I have a vivid memory of uh, that your question brings back, Tammy, of the day that I uh, talked to a, a psychiatrist about my third depression, and I told him how surprised I was that this had overtaken me 17 years after my second one. And he was as I said, uh, not uh, not a talk therapist, but someone who was expert in the science of the subject. And uh, he said, well, statistics show that if you have one depression, you have a 25% chance of having a second depression. If you have a second depression, you have a 50% chance of having a third depression. And if you have a third depression, you have a 75% chance of of having a fourth depression. And I have a vivid memory of walking out of that office just saying this mantra to myself, I am not a statistic, I am not a statistic, I am not a statistic. And I don't believe I am or anybody else is. Um, so I, 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 I faced into that one early on and as far as I know, I um, I moved past it. Um, I, I don't, I'm not aware of, of holding that fear at all. And then my final question, Parker, is that I was quite taken when you were talking about finding ourselves at different altitudes in our life. I might use my own language for that, saying finding myself kind of inflated or blown up in some way, like a big helium balloon filled with helium and unrealism and not connected to the ground. And I'm wondering if you, here at the end of our conversation, could share with us, are there ways that you and your life now stay connected to the ground, intentional things that you do to keep yourself grounded and embodied and not at altitude from life? Well, I think that um, I think it's a wonderful question, and I think it's an agenda, you know, for all stages of life. Um, I, I'll have to say again that I think the aging process itself, um, at least as I'm as I'm experiencing it, is a grounding process. Um, you know, Leonard Leonard Cohen is. I think one of the wisest uh, 
philosophers of our of our time to to say nothing of being a brilliant songwriter and he has this great line in one of his songs where he's 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 reflecting on on age i think he's probably almost 80 now and he says i ache in the places where i used to play <laughs> and when you when you start experiencing your body that way you it it has a grounding effect you you it's one of the signs of your mortality it's it's one of the signs that you need to slow it down a bit and uh, be a little more gentle with yourself and keep it a little closer to the ground um you know you realize that uh, that if you go flying off that trampoline or or uh, off that uh, ski slope you're 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 going to you're not going to bounce as as readily as you did 20 or 30 years ago um you're much more likely to break something or crack something um so there's that there's there's simply the the biological process of of actually descending toward the earth which which you start to feel um as as uh, as your body uh, as you, as you start to experience the the finitude and and fallibility um of your body i'm reminded of a of a great phrase that I believe belongs to Teilhard de Chardin, who said, "We must we must learn to be hallowed by our by our losses." Um, and I and I think that you know the the, the hallowing in in this law lo- these loss these physical losses or liabilities can come as we do live closer to the earth. The other thing that's that's become important to me, and you know, for some people, this this is a part, has been a part of life since they were quite young, uh, but it, it wasn't for me when I was young. It is now, and that's that's spending more time outdoors in nature. Um, I spent a number of years, you know, either at the keyboard of a typewriter or a word processor. Um, without poking my nose out very much, but I think in the last in the last twenty years or so, um, I've developed um, a real tropism toward the outdoors. I just find my, a gravitational pull there uh, that involves walking in the woods and walking alongside big water and hiking mountain trails when I can and. Um, being in the ocean when I'm able to get there, um, et cetera, et cetera, that is itself very, very, very grounding. I also think that it's grounding to have a, a partner and and friends who who know you for your shadow as well as your light, who know you in all of your complexity and who aren't afraid of of naming uh, that complexity, who, who obviously embrace it because they are partner or they are friends. Um, 
and and who can help remind you that you know you don't wear a cape and you can't fly. Um, that, that those kinds of relationships, I think, are are, are very grounding in themselves. So for me, it comes from a, a whole variety of angles that has to have to do with. Um, I just remembered the correct phrase from from Teilhard de Chardin: "Hallowing our diminishments" was the phrase he used, and and I like that idea. I like that idea very, very much. Um, you know, we we have diminishments throughout our lives. It's just that there are sta- earlier stages of life when we don't want to look at them, we don't want to acknowledge them, we don't want to be honest about them because we think it's important to maintain the illusion that we can fly. It, it's a good thing to be reminded that we can't and that there's a lot of lot to be seen by taking a good walk. <laughs> Parker, I always love talking with you. Quite honestly, you're one of my favorite people to have a conversation <laughs> with. Well, uh, same here, Tammy. You ask such amazing questions, and I always feel so totally trusting with you that it just, uh, I, I, I never feel like I have to hold back on what I want to say. You are the welcome sign. You're a human welcome sign. <laughs> you welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tammy. With Sounds True, Parker Palmer is a contributor to a new anthology called Darkness Before Dawn, redefining the journey through depression. He's also written about his experience of depression in his book, Let Your Life Speak. Parker has also created an audio series with Sounds True, An Undivided Life, Seeking Wholeness in Ourselves, Our Work, and Our World. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.